Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and this is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by Nini's Treats, N-E-N-E-S Treats, ninistreats.com, an amazing family-owned and operated crumb cake business based in Charleston, South Carolina. You can buy their delicious crumb cakes at ninistreats.com or on goldbelly.com. Nini's Treats, you won't leave a crumb. Hi, listeners. First, I just want to thank you all so much for listening to my podcast. I see the numbers and I know you all are out there, but I don't know anything about you or who you are or what you like or what you don't like. My email is zibby at zibbyowens.com or you can reach me through my website, zibbyowens.com, through Instagram or Twitter at zibbyowens. I would love to hear from you guys and just to know what's working, what's not working, what could I do better? Are you all moms? Are you not moms? I don't know. I'd love to hear from you. I want to thank you for making this a top 40 podcast and I couldn't do it without all of you. And I just want to know who you are out there. Thanks so much again for listening and thanks for reaching out. I'm thrilled to welcome Molly Flat here today. Molly is the author of the novel, The Charmed Life of Alex Moore. She's a journalist and author who writes about the way technology changes the way we think, work, and live. She's the associate editor of Future Book and writes about technology, publishing, and culture for the BBC, The Guardian, and other publications. She contributed a story entitled A Darker Wave to the science fiction anthology, Women Invent the Future, and she currently lives in the UK. Welcome, Molly. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be with you, sort of. (laughs) (laughs) Molly and I were introduced by Jeff Norton, who was on the podcast last week. So it's nice to finally get to chat. Yeah, it's lovely to be connected. So Molly, I started reading all the essays that you've published that you have on your website, The f- one of which is called What It's Like to Have a Baby in Zone One. And I was so surprised to find out that your husband delivered your baby in your freezing cold bathroom with a cell phone <laughs> operator on the floor. And tell You have to tell me the story. Oh, well, Zidi, you'd almost think we did it just so I could get an evening standard article. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it did, to be honest, that's one of the few compensations it made for a really good birth story. (laughs) The backstory is that, so I, I had decided that I wanted a home birth. This was only a kind of a couple of weeks before my daughter was due back in 2016. And so, you know, but, but obviously was planning on having some midwives there. So we were hooked up with NHS kind of local midwife team. We hooked into a local community birthing pool scheme. So, you know, we had this kind of deflated birthing pool sitting in the corner of our lounge. And the plan was that when the time came, we'd kind of inflate it and fill it up somehow in our tiny, tiny flat. But basically, long story short, I was really stubborn. Uh, I do have a high pain threshold, but I decided that my daughter was going to be late because my sister's first child was late. And, you know, by that point in your pregnancy, you're getting all kinds of pains and discomforts and weird feelings. Um, So, you know, in retrospect, when I was sitting in a cafe having like a green smoothie, taking paracetamol and thinking, oh, really uncomfortable I was about you know five centimeters <laughs> well it didn't help that my waters didn't break right until the end so you know when we definitely knew something was happening we were in contact with the home birth midwife team but they kept on going you know oh is it your first baby you know they, they're obviously uh, quite wary of overreacting new mothers and you know and have your waters broken and we're like no so by the time that basically my husband could see the head they realized they weren't going to get there in time so he phoned the ambulance but 
unfortunately there was a bar brawl um, <laughs> in Hackney where we live and all the ambulances were tied up. So basically, um, Yanni had to have the, uh, the 999 call handler on the mobile, propped on the bar, and I crawled to the bar, <laughs> and the call handler talked Yanni through it, and, you know, we were super, super lucky. Actually, my daughter just did kind of come out without any complications, screamed as soon as she kind of got above the water, and then we were alone for about 15 minutes before the ambulance crews finally arrived and tried to find a way into our apartment block. Oh my goodness. The way you wrote it was so funny. Not that it wasn't funny now too, but (laughs) the article was was just (laughs) hilarious. I couldn't believe it. So sorry for starting off with something just intensely personal, but (laughs) I had to find out more about it. I'm glad you're It's fine. I've dined off that story. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you also talked a lot in that article about how you thought you would move out to the suburbs, sort of like your sister who has two kids. And you wrote, they're now walking their rescue mutt through wildflower meadows and crafting with salvage wood and you said you thought you would end up there but but then once when push came to shove you were excited just to stay in London so what do you think that was about can you share what it's like to sort of rethink what you thought your adulthood would look like and then when it comes down to it you want to do something different yeah you know this is so timely because we're actually clearing out and selling my kind of childhood house at the moment the house I grew up in in the countryside so it's stirring up all kinds of memories and comparisons of kind of what my childhood was like as this, you know, in rural Oxfordshire. I was a kid who, you know, kind of barely got dressed and just spent all day running about by herself in the field in a nighty. And yeah, my sister's now a forester, so she very much took that uh, <laughs> that side of herself and kept it going. And, you know, that was so part of my creative growing up and my identity. But... I, yeah, it's hard. I think it's very tempting but impossible to recreate your own childhood. And I think, you know, that wasn't just a rural childhood. That was a rural 80s childhood. You know, nowadays, would I let my six-year-old run around by herself in all of these fields, you know, all day? Probably not. And I think, you know, when it came to having, having my daughter and finding out that I was pregnant, we, you know, we were tempted to do the massive life change, but we also realized that it would probably be a really good thing to, you know, let that be the massive life change rather than throw everything in our lives up in the air. So, you know, we ended up staying in our little flat in London and I love it. I love it. I mean, it does help that my mum still is in the countryside and so, you know, really regularly I go and spend weekends with her, get that country fixed, you know, my daughter get muddy and eat worms and run around and have that space. But I must say as a mum, living right in the centre of London really allows me to juggle the different sides of myself in a way that I think would be really, really hard if I was somewhere more isolated. So, you know, I've got an incredible nursery, just a few minutes walk from our flat, the GP surgery just across the park. You know, I spend on, on days when I look after my daughter and she's not in nursery, we've got, you know, we can spend all day at the Natural History Museum for free, at the Science Museum, or one of the amazing parks. You know, I can still balance my work. I can still, you know, last night we were out at the ballet at the Royal Opera House. You know, I feel like I'm really spoiled, actually. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, it's it's worked out well in the end. That's great. 
I know I felt like I could relate when you were talking about all the different things you do in London. I was like, I don't even do all that stuff in New York. And I'm just like sitting here. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, why am I not oh, yeah. like at the and ballet? Also, like, <laughs> I don't do any of that stuff. Oh but. my God. I mean, Bibi, not to idealize it though, right? <laughs> like, of course, that's like, that's like the journalist version. That's the Instagram version <laughs> of, you know, any sort of parenting, be it rural or urban, you know? It's like, of course, there are days also when I'm like, her lungs are literally going to dissolve from the saturation of pollution in the air around here you know there's some drug addict you know on the corner of the street as I get out of their our flat you know mumbling stuff and throwing things you know there's the knife crime there's the terrorism there's the you know and there's just the rubbish days where you feel like an awful mother and they're being an absolute a-hole and you know it's stressful and horrible but you know I'm not sure location's really going to change the bad days and so yes I'm, I'm generally try to be a super positive thinker so I try and paint the picture in my head that this is the life I want to live and a little bit of self-delusion can go a long way. <laughs> <laughs> my gosh I love that. You wrote this other amazing article for The Pool which was called How Writing Taught Me to Let Go and Finally Accept My Flaws which I loved. I loved, loved, loved it. Cheryl it on social like everybody should read this article and it was really about what you had to give up to start and finish writing a great novel which became the charmed life of alex moore you had to give up sort of your salary as a you know social media marketer your relentless need to self-edit your perfectionism you described your earlier days working in the tech industry as quote days spent high on groupthink and vitamin water my nights spent alone in hotel rooms lovingly tending to my social feeds while my stomach ached which i thought that was such a brilliant description. Then you contrast that to writing 100,000 words again and again. Um, and what you wrote at the end was so great. You wrote, perfection is a form of hiding. It's a way of shutting your true, weird, complicated self away in a shiny air-conditioned car. It can feel like a refuge, but it's also a prison. And one day, however diligently you drive it, it will crash. So get out of the car, kick, scream, and cry on all available shoulders then find something to do that matters to you and get the hell on with it with all your terrified heart. I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm going. I can't wait. Oh, Cindy, that sounds so good in your accent. You make that sound really smart and eloquent. So I think I need an audio version of all my articles <laughs> read out by Cindy Owen. Oh, you're so, so funny. cooler in American accent as well. <laughs> I feel like everything sounds cooler in a British accent. I feel like a British accent alone makes you sound oh. 50 times smarter than anybody else. But, um, but thanks. Nice to know it goes both ways. <laughs> so tell me more about this process of writing a novel and what you had to go through sort of emotionally to let yourself really feel and, and write. Yeah, it's just hard, isn't it? And articles are slightly different because normally, you know, as a journalist or as a copywriter or other sorts of writing that I do, you know, you're imparting facts, you've got an aim, you've got a kind of angle. Whereas, you know, I think for me, you know, novels are about your truth. You know, you're not going to commit to writing something that long um, and that challenging and that personal unless you really have something that you want to say and you're going to try and explore, you know, ambiguity as well. I think that's what novels are so great at, that they're great, they're great at real life, which means not black and white, which is what a lot of media and journalism comes down to. They're great at the messy, weird, grey areas of feeling and relationship. And that's stuff we tend to try and avoid in our lives. We try and make everything boundaried and clear and <laughs> clean and Instagram-friendly. And so, yeah, I had to kind of relearn how to, I mean, partly how to think because, you know, I've been a digital marketer and a writer 
a kind of journalism for a long time. So learning how to think in that more architectural, long-form way was quite hard. But yeah, also how to feel. I mean, it was part of me growing up, really. I don't think I could have ever written a novel before I did. So, you know, I completed the manuscript, what, two years ago or so, so, when I was 33, 34. So that, you know, I think I really needed that time to know what I wanted to say and who I am. But yes, have the strength to be vulnerable, if that makes sense in any way, and the courage to kind of put it out there. Because that's a terrifying thing about novel. You're putting out there, you know, here's what I think is true about the world. Here's what I think is interesting about the world. Here's how I see things. Here's what I think is funny. Here's what I think is surprising. And, you know, you're kind of going, am I a total freak? Or does this resonate with anyone? Which feels very exposing. And so, yeah, I had a really seminal meeting with a a woman who I'd only met once before. She'd asked to see me because she read an article of mine. And this was back when I was really kind of working on the manuscript and had deleted another 100,000 words and, you know, wasn't quite making it work. And she said something to me about, I really like that article. And, you know, I'm excited to see your novel because if you can have the emotional freedom that you had in that article with your novel, then, you know, I think I'm going to love it. And it was a moment where I went, oh, oh, because I've been, you know, because I had the plot, I had some smart characters, I had a clever plot, you know, I had the kind of concept behind the book. But that really unlocked for me. I realized that if I was going to finish the book and make it into what I wanted it to be, I needed to really give in and go there with the emotions and have that emotional freedom. And if there's anything that screws up being perfect, it's emotions. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it was one of those amazing serendipitous conversations that was just the right place at the right time and that really unlocked the, the key of it for me. And then that's where the real hard work started. <laughs> and you, you wrote somewhere else that it took you 15 years to end up writing the whole book. Is that true? Oh, I mean, that was, so I think that was when I wrote that, I was talking about the concept, so the concept at the heart of the book. Okay. I had been so the library, which will mean something to you, but probably won't mean a lot to, uh, to anyone listening to this. But if you read the book, you'll, uh, you'll know what I mean. The concept of the library had been, I don't know where it came from. It had just been in my head for ages and ages and ages. So that's kind of the 15-year book. I mean, in terms of writing, it still took me a good seven years to write a thing. And again, that was doing me the whole draft that then got deleted and I started again from scratch and things like that. Oh um, and I'm kind of hoping that was a debut novel thing. <laughs> and that was because I was figuring out so much about myself as well as, you know, how to write the book because before you've done it, you have no idea how that happened. And that it's not going to take me seven years to write all of my future <laughs> books. But yes, it was certainly a long haul with this one. And can you tell listeners what your book is about and then how you came up with the idea, not just for the library, but the whole the whole idea, the whole plot? How did you come up with it and what was it about? Okay, well, you'd think I would have this down pat now that it, I mean, it was published in May. We're pulling together the marketing for the paperback next February. You'd think, Libby, that I would have a really good pitch. <laughs> you don't have to. I can try. I, can... <laughs> no, I think the closest, what I really love is the way my agent sold it to my editor. And she says, this book is Bridget Jones meets The Matrix. Mm, which, I like that. 
it's it's kind it's kind of mad, right? And of course, when I first heard it, I was like, I mean, The Matrix, amazing. I'm a massive fan of William Gibson. Um, Bridget Jones, I was a bit like, oh God, what rom com? Like you know, in a snobby way. Even though I love reading Bridget Jones and rom coms, <laughs> but actually, I think it's a smart way of putting it because what that does is it juxtaposes two things. Where there's certainly absolutely elements in my book of you know a heroine journey through job and relationship and success with the slightly kind of speculative element of the matrix and a bit of a tech element. But when you put those two things together, you really have no idea how they work together and what's going to come out of it, which I think is the effect my book has. I mean, the one keynote I get again and again is I've read nothing like this, which is, you know, awesome. That, that, that for me is the real compliment and very cool. doesn't make it the easiest thing to market. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, in more layman's terms, I suppose, it is basically about a 31-year-old woman living in London's kind of tech startup scene for whom six months ago everything in her life suddenly went right so she used to be you know just kind of scraping along in life doing fine but nothing was exciting not really fulfilling her potential you know this dead-end job spending her evenings like eating ready meals and watching box sets and you know just kind of feeling her youth and her potential kind of sliding away and then six months before the novel starts something clicked, like she finally found this startup that she's had this amazing idea for, she kind of becomes the toast of the town, she, you know, starts kind of making lots of new friends, she's on the front cover of magazines, but as the novel goes along, of course, you realise that a change doesn't really work like that, and that something happened six months ago to make all this happen, and it's connected to this island uh, in the Orkney Islands, so that's in the far north. These are, these are real islands off the north of Scotland. Um, and so she's invited there um, ostensibly to go and do a research project. But as soon as she's there, she kind of discovers that there's this big secret hidden on these islands. Her success is um, kind of mucked up and that her success has been caused by. And she has to kind of go on a... But it, I suppose it's kind of a detective story. She has to go on a detective story about herself and about what's holding her back before this happened and how she's managed to kind of free herself from all her own self-limiting beliefs. I think you did a good job there. That was pretty good. <laughs> Thanks, Billy. No, no problem. I, yeah. You can take that, uh, take that on the road. Um, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting about your book was how when Alex was basically reinventing herself as this, you know, tech star, her fiancé and her family feel like she's basically changing too much, like she isn't herself enough. And her fiancé takes yeah. a, lot of, a lot of offense when he overhears another colleague saying that Alex had described her life before she saw the, you know, proverbial entrepreneurial light as as her being a, quote, dead-eyed desk monkey about to become a baby machine and that she had escaped the life of terrible mediocrity. But that was their life together. So he uh, he's not too happy about that description. He thought it was kind of fine. Do you think this is common, basically, when one spouse kind of tries on a new identity and leaves the other behind? Like, has this happened to you? Or did you see this in a friend's relationship? How did you come up with this? Yeah, so, I mean, I think there are a couple of things to unpick here. One is absolutely, I think, a lot of people think they're really terrified of failure when actually what's much more scary is success. So one thing that really interested me is, you know, friends who I know, and, you know, and myself as well, you know, friends who I know are super talented, super smart, could do anything they wanted, but never 
quite found their mojo, were always dissatisfied, were always, you know, kind of doing something that was okay, but that didn't really set their spirit alight, who always felt they could do better. And I was just so interested in what's, what's the breaking point? What makes people, you know, what distinguishes people who push from people who don't? And, you know, obviously sometimes it is pure circumstances, but, you know, what is that thing that some people seem liberated from to just go out there and fight for whatever, you know, their dream is. So, and, you know, in myself, I know this thing about it's so much easier to want to keep your head below the parapet and to not try. It seems like a sort of arrogance trying for your full potential or trying for brilliant or trying for just like, you know, not terrible. It's, you know, I think that's quite a British thing as well, this, uh, (laughs) this fear of, of, of fighting to the top and that it feels very prideful and it feels quite embarrassing. So, you know, I think, yeah, a lot of people are more afraid of pushing yourself out there because if you're not a victim and if you're trying, if you're trying with your whole heart, then it puts you in a very vulnerable position. And actually the consequences of getting what you want in life can be more scary than being someone who's always striving for it, you know, because then you have to ask, what next? And in fact, do I really want it? And I think, you know, that takes me to the second point about that kind of sentiment and that theme that you read out or that line. You know, I am always, I think, again, exploring these grey areas with the book. So that comment is partly, of course, a comment on, you know, the sadness of people settling for something that feels, you know, not quite as amazing as it could be. But it's also a bit of a critique of how much we fetishize leadership and amazingness and actually, you know, having an okay job that allows you to go home at 5pm and see your kids or just getting like that is can be amazing too that can be a totally different form of success you know success is not always about being the flipping instagram friendly entrepreneur who's smashing it and who's a lady boss and actually it can be being a follower not a leader it can be being someone who has different priorities and different values and lives their life differently so i think you know i'm always trying with this book to question both sides, to say absolutely don't settle and try and pull apart the things that are holding you back. But at the same time, don't forget to question what you really want. Because once you get there, you know, you might realize that you've been chasing a dream that someone else has set, that it's a fake dream or a media dream, or indeed that, you know, there are different values and different kinds of brilliance other than the obvious or the flashy ones. And do you think that's why her mom, Alex's mom, also sort of pushed back against her success when she said, you know, I just wonder if you're going about it all a little wholeheartedly. Like, do you feel like (laughs) the people closest to you are the ones who are most rattled or affected by the change? Like they don't know what to do with it in a way? Yeah, I mean, I think as a mom, I can kind of feel there's partly that fear where, of course, you want your children to fulfill their potential, but you also want to protect them. So again, like I was saying, you know, that putting your head above the parapet, that throwing your whole heart into anything, you know, that's kind of scary because hearts get bruised. And, you know, if you throw your whole self into everything, you're putting all your eggs in that basket. And what if they get smashed? So I think that's partly maternal protectionism. I think that's partly kind of that British reaction to tall poppy syndrome, you know, don't. And and actually, that's just a personal thing about, you know, I think I've always felt in my life and growing up certainly that I was too much 
that I was too loud, I was too tall, I was too enthusiastic, I wasn't cool, <laughs> you know, which means being a little bit restrained or more elegant or more measured. So I think that was, for me, an interesting way of playing with the pros and cons and the social judgment on being someone who properly goes for it and also being a woman, especially, who properly goes for it. Hmm. You know, I, I always think back, I had this moment when I was young and we had these like secret Santas at school. Do you have that where you, you know, you give a gift, but yeah, you don't yeah. And so I spent like hours on my secret Santa gift. I was like in my closet making wrapping paper and making it so perfect. I like had to get it just right. And I remember my mom coming in and saying, you know, Zibby, like you shouldn't spend all this effort because probably no one's going to be giving that much effort to your gift. <laughs> you know, like maybe you shouldn't yeah. be doing, you know, working so hard at this. And I think about that moment a lot when I, now that I have my own four kids and, um, you know, like with Alex sort of going out on her own, like if you want to put yourself out there, do you have to get it back? Like, is it just the effort? I don't know. Random story, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, no, that's a brilliant, brilliant story. And exactly. It's like, what are you doing it for? It's not always about the end sometimes the means in themselves that approach to life is kind of the approach you want to take to life you know right. but sometimes it's also can be perfectionist or exhausting or too extreme you know there is beauty and balance and moderation so again I think the joy of novels is you get to explore these things in which there is no right answer and actually one day it might be one answer and another day it might be another answer um, and you know this book for me was such a fun way of putting on these different personas and putting on these extreme situations and kind of going, what would happen if you're a woman who totally goes for it? How would people react? And, you know, trying things on for size and figuring out, yeah, there are great things and there are awful things about all of these approaches. I feel like now that we're chatting, I don't know if you've read Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine, but I would love to see, of course I, have. I would love really? to see <laughs> Alex and Eleanor sort of in a coffee shop together and see what they would have to talk about. You know what I mean? There's such different... It, wouldn't that be funny? <laughs> yeah, do you know what? It's really interesting because I, I read Eleanor. Eleanor reminded me of Alex six months before the novel began. Yes, exactly. So the Alex who is before all this stuff happened. Yep. Um, and so that was really interesting for me because I was like, oh, oh, she's really like old Alex. Mm. Um, so exactly, that was like the collision. The joy is arrived. You get to do these things. We're like, I'm going to take a past self and like this liberated future self and like smash them together and play with them and things like that. So um, I love the way that books can speak to each other like that as well. Um, you know, they can speak across genres, types, things like that. It feels a, for a very lonely um, profession where you sometimes think you're totally insane. I think it can be a very <laughs> reassuring thing. I wonder if your experience with science fiction writing played into twists and turns that ended up coming in this book. You wrote a piece for The Guardian called Is the Future Female Fixing Sci-Fi's Women Problem? I guess you were asked to write a sci-fi story and you had your doubts originally. You wrote, what on earth did women inventing the future mean? Was I supposed to write some sort of feminist space opera full of menstruating aliens? A utopian version of the singularity with robots who like to talk about their feelings? I like laughed out loud when I read that. And you you wrote in that in that article that you know science fiction had traditionally been male dominated both in its readership and the writers yet you've always loved reading sci-fi and in a way you've ended up I mean I don't know if this would even be called sci-fi I'm not exactly sure of the definition but 
definitely with some unexpected twists and turns that are not in the course yeah. of, you know, daily life. So did you try to sort of marry those genres like that? Or did you have such a good time writing the science fiction essay that you decided to move the book in this direction or what? Well, so the, the short story was, yeah, for, for the Women Invent the Future anthology, that was commissioned by Dot Everyone mm-hmm. for a kind of think tank. And the whole pattern behind this anthology is they were going to ask these female, yeah, sci-fi writers, um, which is interesting because, yeah, I don't think my book would really tick any sci-fi boxes, although someone did describe it as neuroscience fiction, which I kind of liked. And my publisher was like, don't tell that to anyone, they'll find it terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, it was, and, and, and the whole idea is that they wanted to kind of, you know, get some more fresh female sci-fi voices out there and also some more characters, some more female characters who could be role models for girls who want to take science, technology, engineering and math subjects or might want to, you know, become tech entrepreneurs or whatever it might be. So it was a really interesting project. And actually, when I wrote the novel, I just wrote the novel. For me, it was just the story. And I think I didn't really think about genre. And then, of course, you know, when it comes to then working with a publisher, they're like, what do we call this? You know, we can't call it urban fantasy because then people think of werewolves and uh, vampires. We can't call it science fiction because it isn't really science fiction. And do we call it speculative fiction? And then they decided on like commercial fiction with a twist, which is a great cop out. (laughs) Yeah, and I think partly for me, it was that I read very broadly across all genres and I don't really think in genre terms. I just love good stories. And so I think I've tramped over genre boundaries of the story. You know, I was like, well, there's a bit of sci-fi and a bit of fantasy and a bit of detective fiction and a bit of rom-com. And, you know, I suppose I was probably playing with a lot of those expectations and those tropes. But what was really interesting about the um, the article that you mentioned that I wrote in The Guardian off the back of that short story and that kind of feminist sci-fi anthology was the reaction. Now, The Guardian, I, I don't know if you guys know this in the States, but, you know, in the UK, The Guardian is famous for having shall we say, quite vociferous commenters on any online articles. And I got this whole wave of comments about, ah, well, you've obviously never read, you know, list here a bunch of amazing female sci-fi authors. Or, you know, you've never read the 70s wave of female sci-fi feminism, blah, blah, blah. And hilariously, they were making exactly the point I was making, which was, I think what's unhelpful in genre is to have any sense of right. Because, you know, I think I would be terrified to ever call myself a science fiction author because I would feel like I hadn't read all the canonical classics or I wasn't reading the right mm-hmm. kind of woke uh, authors. Or, you know, I didn't have a totally comprehensive academic overview of the genre or whatever. And I hate that because I think what we need right now more than ever, is a sense of welcome, a sense of diversity, a sense of quirkiness, a sense of individuality in writing and in reading. You know, reading's under threat. It's under pressure. You know, there's not just a whole generation, but all of us are spending a lot more time, you know, watching Netflix or just simply scrolling mindlessly through our social media as opposed to reading, you know, long-form books. And... I think what really doesn't help is making people feel like their voices, their experiences of different genres or different stories or different hybrids aren't valid because they haven't read the canon or read the classics or read this feminist author or read that, you know, iconic writer. Actually, what I think is great is the more 
kind of disruptive voices we get from all over the place just bringing their partial bits of reading and their partial experiences and their lived experience of the world into their writing. And I think that has sometimes been an issue, especially with kind of science fiction and fantasy, that it's been a very self-protective community, which in some ways is amazing because that's also where you get real passion. You get amazing, dedicated fans who adore the genre and adore, and you know, I used to be an obsessive exile geek. So, you know, I know of which I speak, but you know, I think it can also be incredibly unhelpful to make people feel that they've got to tick certain boxes to qualify as being this sort of writer or that sort of writer. And, you know, they need to do a kind of apprenticeship by reading whichever authors are, you know, particularly well thought of at the time or or quirky enough or rediscovered enough or whatever it might be. So, yeah, that was a very interesting experience for me writing that. And come on, I mean, anything where you're going to be saying, you know, about female science fiction, you know it's going to create a shitstorm, pardon my friend. So I kind of knew it was going to come. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're right, though. I mean, I think one of the greatest things about writing is that there's sort of no barrier to entry. This is not needing a patent to start producing some sort of tool. I mean, like writing, you just open up Microsoft Word or whatever and just start doing it. Anyone can do it. And to make people feel that someone's sort of guarding the gates is just totally against what's the greatest part is just hearing so many different voices. And that's why I think reading is so great. You never know. They're just all different people's stories and visions. And Oh, a hundred percent. And, you know, I think of course there's value to, you know, I'm a voracious reader across all kinds of genres and and industries and I think you know if you are a writer also there is huge value in trying to interact with that history and that tradition and you know we're all climbing on the shoulders of giants so I can only write because of all the books I've ever read really but yes I think what we need right now is a sense of experimentation and play and inclusiveness and fun And also, you know, Zibi, it's just pointless. Genre boundaries are dissolving, I feel. You know, the real world, quite frankly, to me at the moment, feels like a kind of Neil Gaiman, William Gibson kind of near future experience. You know, like tech, I feel like I'm living in the sci-fi cyberpunk novels that I was reading in the 80s and 90s now in real life, you know, mixed in with a good bit of kind of Cold War Russian spy thriller. I mean, the world at the moment (laughs) seems so far away from the kind of, you know, literary novels that were always held up as realistic literature, you know, people going for walks in parks and sitting around dinner tables having existential conversations in West London. That, to me, feels totally unreal compared to actually, you know, lots of different genres. So I think boundaries are dissolving everywhere, and that's a great thing, and people shouldn't feel afraid to, like jump in the pool and splash around to mix all my vegetables. (laughs) (laughs) I know, Molly, we're almost out of time. I don't want to take up all your time all day, and you've been so generous to to spend the time talking to me. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors before we go? Oh, goodness, that's a big one. Whenever anyone asks me something like this, I always basically plagiarize Richard Skinner. He's actually got a book out at the moment on how to write a novel, which I really recommend people go out and look at. He's the director of the Faber Academy novel writing course and I did a six month kind of stint of that a good six or so years ago now. But what Richard always said at the end of every session our group did with him was just keep going. I think that is everything. That is everything with writing. Look, maybe you'll write for 70 years and at the end of it you'll have one book that will be amazing you know and you love it 
I think there are so many distractions. There are so many things. There are so many things you can worry about, about playing the market, about different forms, about digital. You've just got to keep going because nothing exists unless you have the thing itself. You know, to get everything and just keep going. And it will take its own time. And it, sometimes it will be a one-year project and sometimes it will be a seven-year project. But just as you said, you know, that's the joy of writing. You don't need anything except for a pen and a paper or a dictaphone or a laptop or however you choose to do it. And as long as you're writing, you're a writer. So, yeah, just keep going. <laughs> awesome. Very inspiring. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for coming on. Moms don't have time to read books and taking the time. It was amazing chatting with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And yeah, I'd love to continue the conversation with anyone who's out there <laughs> wants to disagree or agree or anything else. So I'm on Twitter at Molly Slat, two T's. And so yeah, come and throw digital tomatoes or otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Good idea. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been brought to you by Nini's Treats. Nini'sTreats.com, available also on goldbelly.com. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.